I walked in this morning and uh, someone in front of me sank into those comfortable chairs. They said, Roper, you better be good this morning. <laughs> so if you can't be good, you better preach loud. Uh, I thought I should... Uh, I, any of your friends who have been warned by their orthopedic surgeons to stay away from this church can now uh, invite them back. Their chairs are not too damaging. Would you turn with me to the uh, third chapter of Daniel, Daniel 3. This is, as I'm sure you're aware, the story of the uh, three Hebrew children, so-called children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I read a story once uh, about a preacher who had a hard time remembering those names, and he was afraid when he when he spoke that he would forget and so he jotted down their names on a three by five card and pinned them on the inside of his coat so when he came to uh, this passage he said now we're going to study the and then sure enough he forgot and uh, but he was prepared he said now we're going to study the three Hebrew children Hart, Schaffner and Marx (laughs) (laughs) who were I suppose Hebrew children but uh, not these three Now, uh, I say so-called children because we're accustomed to thinking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the yamulka and short pants and little little Jewish boys. They were not children. They were adults. They were in their late teens or early 20s when uh, this event took place. And we need to picture them in that way. If you will, try to picture one of our uh, uh, young men or women in this congregation, seniors in high school on up through early college years, that would be about the age of these, uh, these three Hebrew men. This is not a story about children. This is a story about manhood and how to be a man. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background to the chapter. I, I always am hesitant to do this. You know how I get tied up in history. As my wife says, when you preach on these narrative Old Testament subjects, you tend to get historical. Um, and I know I say too much. I, I heard once... Uh, about a little girl who came home from kindergarten her first day in school. And her mother said, What did you learn, dear? And she said, Too much. <laughs> and I, I don't want you to say that about this sermon when you, uh, when you leave. But this, these historical facts are not only interesting, they're helpful in interpreting the passage. Uh, you have to go back to chapter 1 to get something of the background. If you'd like to turn back there with me, you can follow along uh, in a first-hand way. About uh, 605 B.C., right at the tail end of the 7th century before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army sacked Jerusalem and took off to Babylon a number of Judean uh, princes, sons and daughters of the royal family in Jerusalem. They were taken to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar and his court chose the best-looking, the most handsome, the most physically fit, the brightest of these young men, and put them through an intensive training uh, course to re-educate them for the Babylonian court. They must have been about 14 or 15 years of age when this took place. According to chapter 1, they were taught Babylonian literature and language, which means they had to learn all of the languages that were spoken in in Babylon at that time, Aramaic and Akkadian and other languages. And they had to read the literature of the Babylonians, which meant they were introduced not only to history and and science 
and uh, economics, but they were introduced to the Babylonian pantheon of gods and their mythology. And they submitted to this. Apparently their faith was strong enough that it was not overwhelmed by, by uh, schooling in Babylonia. Secondly, their names were changed. Uh, if you read uh, verse 6, it says, Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And their names are all what, what Old Testament scholars call theophoric names. That is, they are God-bearing names. They bore the name of the God of Israel. Daniel's name means uh, God is judged. Dan Elohim, God is the judge. All of these names are combinations of the name of God. But their names were changed to reflect Babylonian thinking. It was all a process of, all part of naturalizing these young men and, and getting them into the Babylonian culture. They were given new names, and all these names are reflections of the Babylonian uh, pantheon of gods. They're all combinations of Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar, for example, which was Daniel's name when it, when it was changed, is based on the name of the god Bel, or Baal, as he was known in Canaan. That was Nebuchadnezzar's god. Uh, Abednego, his name means servant of Nebo. Nebuchadnezzar's name is based on the name Nebo as well. So they're all given pagan names that reflected pagan thinking, pagan religions. They submitted to all of this, but there was a point at which they drew the line, as we'll see. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And the question is, why? Why, wouldn't, why would he stop at this point? He permitted uh, his name to be changed. He underwent re-education in the, in the Babylonian thought world. Why would he stop at this point? Well, we're not told in the text. But there are some good guesses. Some have said that these were meats that were offered to idols. But that's probably not the case. Or if it were, it wouldn't be a problem. That, that's a New Testament problem. Remember, we ran into that one when we were going through Corinthians. And, and we can't transport that New Testament problem into the Old Testament. So that's probably not why he refused to eat the kings at the king's table. Some have said, well, the food wasn't kosher. And it's true, it wasn't. But we know from the books of Ezekiel and Hosea that no food in Babylon was kosher. They had to forego all of the, the, the cash root system, the Levitical dietary system, because uh, all food was unclean in Babylon. There was no way that they could keep the Levitical dietary ordinances in Babylon. So that apparently was not the problem. When you dig a little further, you discover what's going on. In the ancient world, when you ate at the king's table, it was symbolic of aligning yourself with him politically. In other words, you subscribe to his policies, whatever they were. It's somewhat like uh, as the uh, medieval knights would vow fealty to their king and they would eat at his table as, as uh, 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 what's the name of the guy with the round table? Uh, yeah, that guy. Uh, they, ate, they ate at his table and they, they subscribed to his policies, you see. And this was the problem. To eat with the king, it wasn't a matter of food per se. To eat with the king was to align yourself with him. And at that point, Daniel drew the line. Because he would not place himself under the king as an absolute authority. He had a higher authority, and that was God. And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, agreed with him. Now, you know the story. They, they ate uh, grain, literally, not vegetables, as the text puts it. They ate grain, Babylonian Wheaties. For ten days, 
And when it was all over, they looked like champions. They were fatter than anyone else. Which, incidentally, is helpful to realize that fat is a blessing. It is not a curse. Keep that in mind, please. But at, at, at the end of this test period, they looked better than anyone else. They had proven their point, so they didn't have to eat with the king. And at the end of the chapter, we're told that uh, when, when, when the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Dan- Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. Those were their original names. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Just a little footnote on Daniel's life. He uh, outlived six Babylonian kings, the Babylonian Empire, and continued in the court as a, as a part of the Babylonian cabinet until the first year of Cyrus, the Persian king. So he... He uh, had a prominent position in Babylon for something like 66 years. He lived at least two more years after the first year of Cyrus and saw the exiles return from Babylon into, into Jerusalem. He had a long, illustrious, distinguished career, as did his uh, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in chapter 2, you have the story of the strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He uh, ate Babylonian pizza or something, and he was not sleeping well. In the middle of the night, he saw this enormous statue with a head of gold, with uh, the torso of silver, with legs of, of uh, bronze or brass, and legs of, of iron, lower legs of iron, and feet of clay, baked clay, ceramic. Uh, it had a ceramic appearance. And then he saw a, a rock cut out of the mountain without hands, and it rolled down the mountain and crushed the feet of the, of the statue so that it crumbled and it was ground to powder and blown away. Nebuchadnezzar woke up thinking that this dream must apply to him. He was a new king. He hadn't been on the throne long. He was probably very unstable, unsure of himself, wasn't, uh, wasn't at all confident in his leadership, and that may be what led to the dream. But God himself directed the course of the dream because he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know something about his place in history. Uh, he, he forgot the dream. You ever do that? You have a dream? And you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, that's very, that's very uh, significant. And you go back to sleep and you can't remember what it is. Well, that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So the next morning he calls all of his uh, astrologers together, who are supposed to know everything, and he said, tell me my dream. That's the origin of the song, you tell me my dream, I'll tell you yours. <laughs> they couldn't do it. But Daniel could. And as you know, he interpreted the dream. That you are, he said, the head of gold. The, uh, the rest of the statue represents the empires that will succeed you. Now, we know, looking back, what those empires were. The torso represented the Persian Empire. The upper part of the legs represented uh, the Grecian Empire under Macedonia and his four uh, generals. And the legs, the kingdom of, uh, or the empire of Rome. And uh, the stone represents the kingdom of God, which crushed the entire statue in the end. Now, we don't need to go into that. That's another topic entirely. The only thing I want you to realize is that what happens in chapter 3 grows out of the vision of the image because the whole thing went to Nebuchadnezzar's head. He saw himself as the head of gold. This was the golden age. And regardless of what happens in the future to other kingdoms, my kingdom will endure. He saw that, you see. And so he decided to commemorate 
this dream, and basically what he did is he erected a monument to himself. Now, the theme of chapter 3 is this phrase, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. It occurs many, many times throughout the chapter. And it's based on chapter 2, where Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that it's God who sets up kingdoms. Well, Nebuchadnezzar missed that point. He didn't realize that it was God who places kings in position and deposes kings. He's the one who juggles things around historically. Uh, he's sovereign in his control of human events and human affairs. Uh, human affairs. Nebuchadnezzar missed that. The whole thing went to his head. He thought that he was God Almighty. And that's why he built the monument that's described in chapter 3. Now let's look at that chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image. Uh, the word image signifies a statue in human form. So this is not an idol. Uh, it was not built to represent any of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, gods. It was built to represent Nebuchadnezzar himself. Someone reminded me this last week that in 1957, when Ghana became an independent state, it was the first black independent state in Africa, as you know, Prime Minister Nkrumah had a statue made of himself, and he, and he put it out in front of the parliament, uh, parliament house. Uh, this sort of thing is done, you know, to to organize the state, unite the state around the leadership. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. So he makes a statue to himself overlaid with gold. The phrase uh, of gold doesn't mean it was solid gold. This means it was gold plate. Ninety feet high and nine feet wide. Uh, the dimensions would suggest something like the, the Washington Monument, not that tall, not nearly that tall, but that type of appearance. It was a steely, a very slender, tall uh, object. Ninety feet tall. Now, that's not unusual for those days. The Colossus of Rhodes was about 30 feet taller, so that it was possible to make something of this size. But you can imagine how impressive this thing was. Palm trees were only about 75 feet tall. So this thing would project over the top of the palm trees. And furthermore, we're told that it was set up in the plain of Dura. So it was in a plain where it could be seen from all sides, all shimmery and shiny because of the gold uh, plating on it, gold plates on it. It was in the province of Babylon. Dura is one of the suburbs just, just outside the walls of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. The uh, dignitaries are all listed in descending order, beginning with the satraps, who would be the provincial governors, on down to the lesser uh, dignitaries in the, in the government. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials which would gather up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know where Daniel was. He doesn't even appear in this, in this chapter. Perhaps he'd been sent out of town. In any case, he's not there. But uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be there. All the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So the, the option is to bow or burn. To bow was, uh, as you might say, the only live option. 
these furnaces were uh, brick kilns. They found dozens of these things in the Babylonian, in, in the area, in the area of Babylon. They looked like train tunnels. One end blocked off, the other end opened with ventilation shafts on the top, and they were charcoal-fired. They could force a draft on these things and raise the temperature to about 1,000 degrees centigrade. So this is no laughing matter. It was very obvious who was, who was the boss, who was the king, no question. The option was to serve Nebuchadnezzar, serve the state, kneel down to him, make him absolute, or die. There's no question about it. When I was at Mount Hermon two weeks ago, Ray Steadman told a story about uh, a man in Southern California whose son had been expelled from a very prestigious boys' school on the East Coast, presided over by a, a very British schoolmaster. The man was incensed, and he stormed into the office of the headmaster, and he said, You old goat, he said, You must think you run this place all by yourself. The uh, gentleman stood up, stood at, looked at him for a moment, and he said, Sir, he says, your manners are atrocious, and your grandma is cross, but you have definitely grasped the situation. <clears throat> <laughs> if you were uh, standing before that stele... Uh, <laughs> You, you, would, you would grasp the situation. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He ran this place all by himself. Now, that's the problem that faced these three young men. Verse 7, we're told, therefore, as soon as... The text makes it very clear. As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music... By the way, that phrase will occur over and over and over again... And it's there for effect. It's there for a satirical effect. The author of the book is poking gentle fun at the, all the pomp and, and uh, uh, ceremony that surrounds this, this dedication. When, when the band struck up, everybody hit the deck. Everybody. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this paragraph doesn't tell us that, but we know that from what follows. They were standing tall. And being officials in the province of Babylon, the city of Babylon, they were probably in the front ranks. They stood out like sore thumbs. These three men, everybody else down on their faces in the dirt, and these three men standing there. Now, I don't know about you, if I had been standing there thinking about what I was going to do before the band began to play, I would, could probably justify, in various ways, not standing up. I might think, well, after all, Babylon Nebuchadnezzar paid for my education. I, I owe it to him. Or I might think, well, I could bow down with mental reservations. Like the little girl who was told to sit down, and she said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up inside. You could bow down on the outside, but you could stand up on the inside. Or you could think, well, it's sin to bow down, but I, you know, I can confess that sin, and I'll be forgiven, and then everything will be all right. Or I could think, well, uh, 
think of what I can do for my family. Uh, I'm in an important position. Or think of what I can do for, for other Jews in the kingdom because of my prominence. But you see, the issue was, was very clear-cut. Exodus 20 says, You shall not make for yourself an image of anything that's in the sky or on the ground or in the sea. You shall not bow down to it. You shall not worship it. How clear can you get? God said, You shall not bow down to any image. Nebuchadnezzar says, Bow down or burn. They didn't have any option. There wasn't any way to justify it. It was a clear-cut choice of obedience to God or man. Which would they do? They would not bend. So they stood there. Well, there are always some snitches in every crowd. <laughs> Verse 8 says, At this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Interesting idiom in Hebrew. It, it's, uh, they ate the pieces of the Jews. Uh, it, it's very much like our idiom, I think, to chew out. They chewed out the Jews. They, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, oh, by the way, and notice they're Jews. A little bit of racial overtones here as well. And the word for astrologers here is the, 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 is the young men of the Chaldeans, which would indicate that these were the young men that had been trained alongside Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and who had been passed over for the higher positions that were given to these three men. So there may have been a great deal of jealousy involved as well. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound, here we go again, the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. The first charge was false. The, the, the second and third charges were demonstrably true. There they stood. They would not bow. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He uh, did not want to go on hearsay. He knew these young men. He wanted to spare them if possible. So he called this impromptu hearing. And he asked them, is it true, is it really true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now let me give you another chance, he says. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, that's very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Uh, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar from history, you know that he was a ruthless tyrant. It's remarkable to me that he would give these men a second chance. It gives us some idea of the, of the kind of respect that they commanded in, in the Babylonian court. He didn't want to kill them. He wanted to give them another chance. So now they have a chance to, to rehearse again all the reasons why it would be a good thing to bow down. Definitely was... Uh, uh, hazardous to your health to, to, not buy, to, to not buy down. But the issue was settled. They'd already made up their minds. 
At some point, perhaps in the very beginning, when they had the choice between aligning themselves with the king's policies or aligning themselves ultimately with God, they had decided in the cold light of the day, when, the, when the, this kind of a conflict comes, that we will either choose the will of God or the will of man, we will choose the will of God, no matter what it costs us. We don't need a second chance. And that's why they say to the king in verse 16, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. That, the question he raises is what God can deliver you. They say our God can. The God we serve is able to save us from it, that is from the furnace, and he will save us, same word, from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, there are some lessons for us here in this. Uh, this, I think, is the centerpiece of the whole uh, uh, narrative. And there are some lessons here for us in this paragraph in terms of civil disobedience or disobedience to other authorities in our life, such as uh, our employer or, or someone else who's placed in a position of, of sovereignty, authority over us. How do we handle those situations? Well, the first thing to notice is that they were civil when they had to disobey. They were respectful. Uh, the language here is the language of the court. It's highly respectful. Uh, the New Testament says that there will be times that we have to take stands against the state or others which are, are difficult, and they, they really involve uh, uh, an unwillingness to submit to someone else's rule or will. But in those times, we need to do it with respect. It's always wrong to dishonor or show disrespect to the person who's in a position of leadership over us. There's a reason for that. It's because authority has been placed into, into, into our world because we live in a fallen world. God sets up kings. God institutes government. Without it, civilization as we know it would be impossible. Given our fallen state, Men and women would destroy each other. There would, be a total, there would be total anarchy. So there have to be rules. There have to be laws. And there has to be a government to see to it that those laws are, are kept. The alternative is chaos and anarchy. And so whenever we have to disobey the state or our employer, we need to do it in such a way that we don't undermine the principle of authority itself. And that's why they show respect. And that's why, that's why Paul says, show honor to all men, those that are in positions of leadership over you, kings, rulers, governors, magistrates, police officers, firemen, those that are in positions of leadership. You're to show them respect. It's never, never, never right to be disrespectful, even though you may have to disobey at times. Because to do so is to undermine the, pinnings of, the underpinnings of society. We can destroy civilization if we don't support the principle of authority. And that's why they're respectful. They're civil. The second thing that they do is that they base their stand on a clear-cut scriptural issue. This is not a matter of personal conscience. This is a matter of scripture. This means that you cannot drive 75 just because you disagree with the law that says 55 miles an hour. We're talking about scriptural issues. The apostles had to face this uh, in their own ministry when the Sanhedrin said to them, you, uh, you cannot uh, preach in Jerusalem 
And they said to, the, uh, to their magistrates, whether we should serve God or men, you decide. You're religious men, you decide. But as for us, we have to serve God. And they went out and preached. And they took the consequences. Now, uh, again, I want to underscore the fact that we're talking about clear-cut biblical issues, not matters of mere conscience. If the disciples had been told, you cannot preach on the steps of the temple, and they went out and insisted on preaching on the, in the steps of the temple, that would be a different thing. That would be wrong. But when they were told they could not evangelize at all, there they had an, a biblical issue. I have a friend... Actually, not a friend, just an acquaintance who was, uh, who was a missionary in, in Greece. And uh, Greece is a church state, essentially. The Greek Orthodox Church is the state church there. And uh, other Protestant groups are not permitted to evangelize. But it's a, it's a rule that's kind of winked at. No one says too much about it, particularly out in the, in, when you get away from the big cities. And my friend worked in a small village. And uh, he was passing out tracts one day. And the local magistrate came by and said, you, you can't do that. And the man said, well, I have to do that. The scripture commands me to evangelize. He said, well, you can't do that. You can't pass out tracts. Look, you can talk to your friends. Just don't pass out tracts. So the man uh, goes and gets his hammer and nail, and he nails the track on the telephone pole right out in front of the police station. And the, the police come out and they say, look, friend, we don't want to put you in jail. We don't want to create problems. Just don't pass out tracks. So his next step was to nail a track on the door of the judge. And so they took him into court and the judge fined him for littering because he didn't want to create problems. We'll make a long story short. By the time I met this gentleman and talked to him, he wasn't convinced that he was suffering for Christ's sake. I didn't want to say it because I didn't know him that well and I was an outsider, but I think he was suffering for being foolish. That's utter foolishness. My point is that we need to stand on issues that are clearly biblical, not matters of personal conscience. Now, if it ever comes to that, that you have to bow down to the state, then you can say, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. But it must be, must be done respectfully. The third thing we can learn from this passage is that we've got to be willing to take the rap for it. The state has the right to punish evildoers, or lawbreakers, I should put it that way. And uh, uh, these men did not try to escape the consequences. They accepted it. They stood up and, and, and admitted their guilt. We are guilty, they said. We have broken the law. And they were willing to take the consequences, no matter what those consequences might be. And that's another thing that we need to understand. God may deliver us from the consequences of civil disobedience. But he may choose to deliver us in a way other than the way we might choose. These three men said, God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Say. God may deliver us through death. God may deliver us through simply giving us the stamina and the courage and the ability to go through whatever we have to experience as a result of our disobedience. He will deliver. Paul's last words in 2 Timothy, uh, in, in, in the last chapter, Paul uh, says, At my first defense, when he stood before Nero, at my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone left him alone in the courtroom. 
Nevertheless, he says, the Lord stood by me. And then he goes on to say, And he will continue to deliver me from every evil deed and see me into his eternal kingdom for the sake of Christ Jesus. Now, as we know, uh, Nero took Paul out on the Ostian way and had his head cut off within days or weeks after he wrote that statement. So that Paul's deliverance was through death. Scripture does not promise when we make these kinds of stands that everything will work out well for us. But God does promise to give us the stamina to go through it and to accept whatever consequences come. And though he may deliver us through death, he will deliver us. Now let's see what happened in their case. Uh, Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He was no longer kindly. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. I'm sure that's uh, simply an idiom, to heat the thing up as hot as possible. And commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The reason the clothes were mentioned is because they're flammable. They wore these flimsy outfits in, in Babylon and easily ignited. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The text says one by one they were killed as they took these men to the door of the furnace. The heat was so intense they were probably pouring oil on the charcoal and, and, and making this furnace hotter to the point where when they walked up to the door to cast these men into the furnace, the soldiers themselves were, were killed. And uh, these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So it's curtains for them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Wasn't it three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They must have left the door open so Nebuchadnezzar could see into the furnace. They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The uh, King James translates that phrase, the, the son of God, as though this is a reference to Christ himself. This is a pagan king. He had no knowledge of, of our Lord Jesus. He saw something. He looked like deity. That's his point. Looks like a god walking with these three men. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Terry was telling me last week that he was pouring gas into the carburetor of our old Conquer uh, bus out here last summer, and the thing uh, blew up and and singed all the hair off of his face, his eyes, and the top of his, uh, the front of his hair. But these men had gone through the furnace, and there was not uh, not a single hair singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. I always think of this passage with reference to Paul's statement that we are more than conquerors through him who who loved us. They they didn't come out of the furnace looking like something the the cat had dragged in. Uh, They weren't burned and singed, their clothes hanging on them by threads. 
they, they stepped out of the furnace triumphant. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and frustrated the king, is the idea. They frustrated, uh, the, the NIV has defied the king's commandment, but, it, but it's the idea of frustrating the one in authority. Because they were willing to give up their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. Remember what he said earlier? What god is there that can deliver from my hand? Now he says there's no god, no other god that can, can save in this way. So that Judaism was made a legal religion in Babylon. Jews were permitted from that point on to worship God in, in, in their own way because of the actions of these men. In other words, God was exalted in the eyes of the pagan world because they took this stand. And then we're told that the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of, of Babylon. They themselves were exalted. And then, interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar took his first steps toward conversion. We know from chapter 4 that he became a believer as a result of a series of experiences that he had, one of which was in his insanity. But uh, in the, in the uh, text, in the original text of Daniel chapter 4, the first three verses of chapter 4 belong to chapter 3. So that when Nebuchadnezzar publishes this open letter to the, to the rest of the world, uh, it's a, an expression of what Nebuchadnezzar himself had learned as a result of, of this experience. Chapter 4, verse 1, King, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. That's merely a greeting. It's my pleasure, or it pleases me, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his works. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He is not yet a believer, but he's moving in that direction as a result of what he saw God do through these, these three young men. See? So God was exalted. These men were exalted. And Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, took another step toward faith in, in, in the God of Israel. Now, the question is, what can we learn from this? This is 7th century B.C. What does this have to do with us? Well, when the, when the book was originally written, it was written for the exiles that were in Babylon to encourage them to stand against the idolatry of that day. But what does it say to us? We don't live a, under a totalitarian government. We're not in a Revelation 13 situation. We're in a Romans 13 situation. We have a government that, is, uh, that still believes in law and order and justice, and, and there is a, a still a, a, a consensus a Christian consensus that there ought to be religious freedom. And so we were permitted to worship as we please. What, is this, what does this say to us? Well, it does say that there may come a time when we have to say no to the state, when the issue is this clear, when it's a matter of bowing to the state or bowing to God. We need to make up our minds that we will not bow to the state, that God is the ultimate authority in our life, and we will choose him and please him rather than man. But I think myself where this, this passage applies today is in, in the kind of problems, situations that we find ourselves in where we have to make hard decisions for God 
that go against the, the will of the people around us. Uh, I was talking to a, uh, one of our growth group leaders this past week, and he told me about a conversation that he had with someone in the growth group, a man who works for a company here in, in Boise. And there was a young woman in that uh, company who was uh, leaving town, and they, had a, they were sending her off with a party. And they were passing around uh, a card, a going-away card. And this Christian man looked at the card when he came his way. They were expecting everyone to sign it, and it was vulgar. And he looked at the card, and he was faced with the same kind of decision. Am I going to sign this card or not? You see? And he chose not to. He passed it back to the person that was showing it around, and he said, I- I'm sorry, I really would prefer not to. And at first they didn't understand because they thought he had something against the young woman who was leaving. That wasn't the issue at all. It was a matter of serving God rather than man. Someone else mentioned that they have a friend who is an accountant here in town who was asked by his employer to juggle the bucks. He's a Christian man. He said respectfully, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. He lost his job. Some of you know my friend John Landreth who was uh, at one time sales manager for a, a large pneumatic tool company down in California. He was making over $100,000 a year. His employer asked him to procure women for uh, buyers who came from out of state and were staying in, the, in that area. John said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. He didn't want to impose his morality on the other man. He said, if you want to do that, that's, that's, you must make that choice, but I can't do it. He was fired. He lost his job. He went into bankruptcy. And some of you know the rest of the story. He contracted cancer later. And he's now with the Lord. And uh, if you looked at, at the external elements of his life, from that point on, things very much went downhill for John Landreth. But he would say with the three Hebrew children, God can deliver me. He can preserve me in this job if necessary. But if he doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. I'm not going to do it, see? Those are the kind of choices that we have to make. They're hard choices. But we need to make up our mind right now in the cold light of day, when we don't have these pressures on us, that when these choices come, we will serve God rather than man and will leave the consequences up to him. He may deliver you miraculously, or he may not. He may simply walk through you, with you through the fire. As Isaiah 43 puts it, the promise that God made to the returning exiles is that when you walk through the river, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, I'll be with you. See, this son of the gods here was, was God himself or the angel of the Lord walking through the fire with these men. And they were, uh, they were uh, the, the pain for them was alleviated. It may not be for you. It may be very painful, but God will walk with you through it. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, at my first defense, no one stood, stood by me. Nevertheless, he says, the Lord stood by me. He'll walk with you through it. He'll give you the courage to face whatever you have to face. And he'll deliver you in one way or another. Let me just raise a question in your minds. I'll leave it with you because this is in one of those fuzzy areas where it is very difficult to be definitive. But let me just raise an issue. Let me phrase it as a question. 
If a choice to move to another part of the United States solely for finances comes your way, if the issue is simply more salary or a bigger house or something material, and it means giving up a ministry here that's paying off, that's fruitful, is that the will of God or not? Are you serving mammon or are you serving God? I just raised that question. Some of you know Steve Rowe. His father was an MBA from Stanford, rising young executive with Standard Oil. And he had an outstanding ministry to young businessmen in the San Francisco area 20 years ago. And uh, as you know, Stanford Standard moves their people quite regularly. And he had the choice between going up and out or staying where he was and never prospering in that company. And he chose the latter because he felt that in his case, he had a ministry to men that uh, God had given to him. He made that hard choice. And for the rest of his life, he was just kind of a flunky in Standard Oil. And I just raised that question. It may be God's will to go to another place and God will give you a ministry there just because uh, you're moving to another part of the country. It doesn't mean that it, that's not God's will for you. But... For myself, it seems to me that if the only reason we're going is for money, then we've made mammon God. I just ask you to think that through. Let's pray. Father, these are not easy issues. They're moral problems that uh, we need a great deal of wisdom on. We can ponder them, but your spirit must give us the answers. And so we ask that you would uh, teach us, instruct us, and give us open hearts. Take away whatever it is in our heart that may inhibit us or uh, impair the, the ministry of the Spirit to us. Help us to listen to you with open hearts and be willing to do whatever it is that you've called us to do. Even the small things, the things that no one notices because it's a matter of choosing your will for us. Lord, we thank you for all that you've given to us, for what you have given up in order to secure our salvation. And seen in that light, anything that we give up, Father, is, is momentary and fleeting and, and, and lightweight compared to the eternal weight of glory that will be ours. And so we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would do with us as you see fit. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.